Good morning, friends. So good to see you today. Let me add my own two cents about Vacation Bible School. Uh, Christy invited you to come, those of you who aren't working in VBS, uh, to just see what it's like. And uh, I want to encourage you to do the very same thing. Uh, those of you who are not working this year, just drop in one evening. Uh, Monday night is generally a little crazy. You might wait till Tuesday. Uh, come see Polyester. Come see Robbie Ray. Come see the skit that they've been working on since last Christmas. I'm kidding. It's not, not quite that long. Has it been, Christy? Feels like it, yeah. So uh, a lot goes on. It's great fun. Good fellowship. You know, there are a handful of people up here every night just kind of hanging out and uh, coffee pot's always on and we chew the fat and converse with one another, I mean, and, and visit with one another. And So if you've never seen what it's like, just drop in one evening and, and catch a glimpse. Encourage you to do that. Also encourage you, if you're not working Vacation Bible School, to please pray. I think it was Oswald Chambers who said, uh, prayer does not prepare us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And so I need all of, all of you not working Vacation Bible School to please pray for Keith and Christie as they teach the Bible story, the skit people, uh, just whatever, as Keith prayed for the weather, please pray for the weather, but just lift the whole evening up before the Lord, and, and especially the children come to know Christ. Uh, please pray for that, especially. Uh, and one further VBS note, the children's memory verses are up here if you want to get a head start on those guys. Uh, you can grab uh, one of those. Let me now invite you to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 14. Yes, we're in a new chapter this morning. Uh, blazing ahead through this uh, great book, the Apocalypse of John. Come to a, still in that section, the middle section of the book referred to as the Holy War. How are we, Jeff? Is it up there? Okay, good. Uh, I'll have to look over my shoulder. Anybody have a mirror? I can put a rearview mirror to them. Um, Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Let's read this together before we begin today. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. The word of the Lord, let's pray that He opens our eyes to understand what this passage is about and that he helped me uh, preach it and proclaim it clearly uh, as we begin today. Father, thanks for bringing us uh, to this place this morning, assembling us together 
to sing your praise and to hear your word. And I pray in this you would quicken us now, help us, give us grace, uh, quicken us with your good spirit. May he open the eyes of our hearts, may he open our ears to hear and see the truth that you've given us here. Strengthen me to preach it clearly. Help us all, Lord. Use your word to change us and transform us as you have promised to do. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, since 1886, one way to celebrate victories has been the ticker tape parade that you see a shot of behind me. These are usually held in New York City in a portion of the financial district, sometimes called the Canyon of Heroes, I believe it's what it's called. Uh, stock prices used to be printed on thin strips of paper called ticker tape, and, and these were thrown out of the windows on the parade below, and now I believe they just use confetti for ticker tape parades. But the purpose of these parades was, was to honor and celebrate certain people. Some uh, politicians have been given ticker tape parades like this, it looks like a blizzard, but this is actually a ticker tape parade for Richard Nixon. You can see those long strips of paper there. This took place in 1960. National heroes are also uh, given ticker tape parades. People like Charles Lindbergh, who is seated here next to the man in the top hat. Uh, first man, I believe, to fly nonstop from New York to Paris was given a ticker tape parade. The Apollo 11 astronauts, first men to walk on the moon, were given a ticker tape parade in New York City, and then various military heroes through history. Uh, uh, Douglas MacArthur, these men from Operation, men and women from Operation Desert Storm. In recent years, perhaps you've seen sports teams recognized. Uh, the New York uh, Giants, the New York Yankees have been given ticker tape parades. They're celebrations on a grand scale. Celebrations that are huge, throngs of people crowd this portion of uh, the financial district in New York to honor and celebrate these people. But all these ticker tape parades are nothing. They are nothing. Uh, they pale in comparison to what we read about in Revelation 14 this morning. This is a victory celebration that we've read about on a far grander scale than anything that you and I have ever seen on earth. This is truly the celebration of the ages that we just read about. It's the victory celebration of believers at the end of the Holy War. Uh, it, this is the saint's celebration at the Lamb's victory over Satan. Finally and safely delivered through the Holy War, believers joyfully celebrate the Lamb's victory before the throne of God. After uh, describing the Holy War that we've seen in chapters 12 and 13, uh, describing the tremendous opposition that believers face from the dragon, the, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth, John looks ahead here to our final triumph in chapter 14, our, our celebration of the Lamb's victory in the throne room of heaven. So, you that are fainting this morning, not literally, 
uh, in this point, but your spirit is fainting. And you that are discouraged today, wondering if you'll be able to hold out. And you that are downcast this morning. This, my friend, this celebration was what Paul was talking about, I believe, when he wrote these words. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And when we stand in this celebration, it's hard to believe, but according to Paul, our trials will seem like nothing. What will this celebration look like? What will this eternal weight of glory be like? What will you and I experience? Yes, you and I will be there. What will we experience in the throne room of heaven as we stand before the Lamb? This is what our our passage describes this morning. There are three features of this victory celebration. John describes three features of this celebration to end all celebrations. And the first feature of this celebration uh, that we see is the Savior of the saints. First, we see believers of every era standing before the Lamb in heaven. And I want to mention three things about the Savior of the saints The first is his place. Uh, Notice where the lamb is standing uh, in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. The Mount Zion that John is referring to here is uh, the heavenly Mount Zion, not to be confused with the earthly Mount Zion, the the city of Jerusalem. And we know this is uh, the heavenly Mount Zion because in the the beginning of verse 2, he says, And I heard a voice from heaven... And then in verse 3, and they were singing a new song before the throne. Uh, This takes place in the very throne room of God. So the setting of these five verses is clearly the heavenly Mount Zion. The 144,000 are singing their song in eternity. This is the same heavenly Mount Zion referred to in Hebrews uh, 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to... Uh, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable innumerable angels and festal gathering. One scholar says Mount Zion in Revelation 14.1 is to be seen as the end-time city where God dwells with and provides security for the remnant who have been brought out from the earth. So the setting of our passage today is is the heavenly throne room. Before the throne of God, we see the Savior of the saints and the place where he is, which is in Mount Zion. The second thing we note here in our passage is his posture. Uh, The Savior of the saints is standing in heaven. Look at verse 1 again. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And why do we point this out? Because usually we read in Scripture that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so that he's standing here is something to 
something significant to pay attention to. Uh, for example, Colossians 3.1 is just one place. It says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And many passages state this truth, describing Christ at the right hand of God. The reason he's, we usually see him seated is that he's completed his work of redemption, that he's done his work of paying for sins. Uh, Hebrews 10 describes it like this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so he sits down because his, his work of redeeming uh, believers of all ages is complete. There's one other place that I know of in Scripture where Christ is described as standing at the right hand of God, and some of you are probably thinking about it too. It's, it's the account of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. When Stephen is uh, being stoned by an angry mob, uh, Acts 7 uh, says this, but, but he, that is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I, I see... Um, I lost my place. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. One commentator suggests that uh, the reason for Jesus standing is to welcome Stephen home in anticipation of his entrance into glory. Charles Spurgeon suggests that perhaps the Lamb is standing uh, like a victor over his enemies. He says many a time the Savior knelt in prayer once he hung upon the cross, but when the great scene of our text shall be fully wrought out, he shall stand erect as more than conqueror through his own majestic might. We're not told. Maybe it's a combination of both of these ideas, of Christ standing to welcome us into eternity and also uh, uh, standing as, as he watches us cross that final finish line, uh, to welcome us who've triumphed through him. I, I wonder, and not to be crass at all, but if this is anything like the way uh, we, I say we, it's me mostly, the way I spontaneously stand at sporting events. I just can't help it. And if you've ever, well, of course many of you have been to sporting events, but, you know, when... When the hitter launches a fly ball out towards the bleachers, I mean, I don't. It, it's not somebody has to nudge me and say, "Stand up." I, I just leap to my feet and watch that fly ball sail out uh, in anticipation. It's it's just a great spontaneous thing, and you know, not that any of you go to hockey games. I know that a couple of you have been to hockey games. I I, I remember uh, in Dallas once. Uh, the, the center of the Chicago Blackhawks lost a slap shot from the blue line in overtime. You don't know what that means. But this slap shot uh, in, in just an instant sailed into the back of the net. I leapt to my feet, both fists in the air, and said, yes! With all the Dallas fans around me, <laughs> the place was like a tomb. Except for me. So, I'm using sanctified imagination. I might be straining the text. Could it possibly be that Christ is standing like he stood for Stephen? 
straining to watch us arrive. Whatever the reason, just take note of his posture here because he's usually portrayed as sitting at the right hand of God. But here we see uh, his posture as standing in heaven. The third thing I want you to see about the Savior here is his possession. Standing before the Lamb is the 144,000, the people for whom Christ tied, the people for his own possession. Look at verse 1 again. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Who is this group of 144,000 that has the father's name written on their foreheads? Some uh, believe that this group is composed of Jewish believers and only Jewish believers who've trusted in Christ as their Messiah during the Great Tribulation. They base this on the passage back a few chapters in Revelation 7. Flip over about four pages with me in your Bible to that passage. This is one of the key places that they draw this idea from, that this is a group of Jewish believers who are standing before the throne. Look at chapter 7. Just briefly, let me remind you of what this says. We looked at it several Uh, a couple months ago, I believe, at this point. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. Verse 3, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Well, there, Pastor Rob, that sounds pretty clear. Verse 5 goes on. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Some read this and conclude that the 144,000 in our passage today are Jewish believers who've trusted Christ as their Messiah during the Great Tribulation. But I hold a slightly different view. The reason is this list of 12 tribes is like unlike any other list of the 12 tribes recorded in the Bible. For example, this is not a list of Jacob's 12 sons. His son Dan is omitted from the list. Manasseh, Joseph's son, is included. This is not a list of the 12 tribes that inherited land in Canaan. Dan, again, is omitted. Joseph is listed in place of Ephraim. And Levi, the priestly tribe that never inherited land, is included. So the conclusion is that this does not seem to be a list of ethnic Jewish people, and the 144,000 does not seem to 
refer to Jewish believers. And then further, this sealing that they talk about is promised to the church back in Revelation 3 uh, to the church of Jews and Gentiles. There are some others who believe that this 144,000 in chapter 14 is not a list of Jewish believers, but represents all the redeemed. In other words, believers from every era, the saints in their complete number. They believe, and I'm one of them, that John is using numbers symbolically just as he seems to do throughout the book of Revelation. One scholar notes that the number 12 in Revelation only is used to refer to, uh, to God, his people, and his works. Things like 12 apostles, 12 gates of the new city, 12 foundation stones. In other words, in, the, in Revelation, the number 12 symbolizes perfection. The same scholar says that the number 1,000 typically represents a multitude. So, with this in mind, the math looks like this. And I apologize for pulling out math on you in the middle of July. So 12 times 12 times 1,000 is 144,000. Or, in other words, perfection times perfection times a multitude equals 144,000. He concludes, their number as such represents the incalculable number, a multitude of the saints who stand in the presence of the Lamb. Charles Spurgeon, our good friend, Charles Spurgeon, just to name one example, agrees with this idea saying, it is a vast number put for that multitude which no man can number, who shall stand before the throne of God, a hundred forty and four thousand, which is but a unit put for the vast innumerable multitude who are to be gathered home. It seems to represent the saints and their complete number based on the way John uses numbers symbolically. It symbolizes the fullness of God's people. And take note, friend, that this multitude has been marked and sealed as God's very own possession. Again, I point you to verse 1, the second half, and with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. If you had a document in the ancient world, and if you were to seal it with a wax seal, that would not only protect what's inside that rolled-up document, protect the contents, that seal would also mark it as being your very own document. Uh, this phrase reveals that the 144,000 sealed a few chapters before in chapter 7 were sealed with the name of the Lamb and the name of God on their foreheads. An obvious contrast, think of this, to last Sunday, uh, to the mark of the beast, those that were marked with the name of the beast on their foreheads. Uh, the, uh, we described that as the way, the way that an unbeliever thinks and acts marks them, identifies them as property of the beast. 
And in a similar way, the way that believers think and act, their Christ-like actions and attitudes demonstrate that they've been sealed by God and marked as His own property. They belong to Him. And not only are they marked, what I want you to see is the same group in, in chapter 7 that was marked and sealed is here now. Enjoying the blessings of, uh, of heaven after the, the final judgment. There's certainty here. Those God's seals are kept by him until the end. This is a great thing. They all make it. And that means... that you will make it if you are sealed if you've given your life to Christ if you've trusted in his atoning death on the cross and nothing else God has marked you with his seal the seal of the spirit that indwells you the guarantee of your redemption and you will make it. So if your hands are drooping this morning, you're going to make it. If you feel faint, you're going to make it. Because you're sealed. And here you are, right here in eternity. They've been kept by God. Uh, this is mentioned in Ephesians 1, where Paul says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it. There is certainty. Those who are sealed will surely appear before the Lamb. And I want to point out one more thing about this verse that just seems to keep spilling over. It says, and with Him in the second half, with the Lamb standing on Mount Zion are the 144,000. This, Spurgeon says, is what makes heaven heaven. We will be with Him. You think about what makes heaven heaven, and many of us think about seeing uh, relatives who've gone to be with the Lord, uh, friends and loved, one, loved ones who have passed away. And we think about the joy of seeing them again, and we think that'll be heaven. And we think maybe of streets paved with gold and mansions of glory, and we think that will be in heaven. What's heaven? Christ. Being with Christ. That will be heaven. Listen to Spurgeon. Why that lamb is heaven itself. For as good Samuel Rutherford says, heaven and Christ are the same things. To be with Christ is to be in heaven, and to be in heaven is to be with Christ. Oh my Lord Christ, if I could be in heaven without you, it would be a hell. And if I can be in hell and have you still, it would be a heaven to me. 
for thou art all the heaven I want. We will be with him. We, his possession, the people for his own possession, the redeemed of all ages, those for whom Christ died, this is the third thing we find, uh, the possession of the Savior uh, in eternity. So, the first feature of this victory celebration is the Savior of the saints. But let's press on. There's another feature I want to draw your attention to in our passage, and that's the song of the saints. Next we see uh, the redeemed joyfully lift their voices before the throne to sing about their redemption. And again, there's uh, three things I want to point, to you, uh, point out to you about the song. And the first is its sound. The sound of this song is incredibly loud. Look at verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. We learn later that this is the voice of the redeemed, the 144,000 of you and me singing. It's like the roar of many waters Think of the roar made by Niagara Falls, a, a thunderous sound if you've ever been there, made by water rushing over the falls at a rate of over 2 billion gallons per hour. It's earth-shaking. Spurgeon comments on the volume from heaven. He says, have you, have you never heard the rumbling and booming of Ocean on the shore when it has been lashed into fury and has been driven upon the cliffs? If you have, you have a faint idea of the melody of heaven. It was as the voice of many waters. But do not suppose that it is the whole of the idea. It is not the voice of one ocean, but the voice of many that is needed to give you an idea of the melodies of heaven. You are to suppose ocean piled upon ocean, sea upon sea, the Pacific piled upon the Atlantic, the Arctic upon that, the Antarctic higher still, and so ocean upon ocean all lash the fury, and all sounding with a mighty voice the praise of God, such is the singing of heaven. It would be deafening if we didn't have glorified ears. It will be really loud. Not like your neighbor's music from next door that he thumps away at 11.30 p.m. at night. It will be so welcome. John says it's also like the sound of loud thunder. And I know we all think we've heard loud thunder. I thought I had until the time Christy and I lived in Marietta. Lightning struck a tree right next to our apartment building, not too far from our bedroom window. It's like a cannon shot. We were both bolt upright in bed, one of the loudest things I've ever heard in my life. Did not wake up the children. Set off every car alarm in the parking lot. That woke up the kids. But look further. It is not only incredibly loud, it is incredibly sweet, as verse 2 goes on to say. Uh, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. It's majestic, it is loud, and at the same time it is sweet and refined 
like the music of a harp. William Hendrickson says, yet although it will be majestic, sublime, and constant, it will at the same time be the most lovely, sweet, and tender song you have ever heard. Harpers harping on their harps, the, the majestic and the tender, the sublime and the lovely are beautifully combined in this new song. So this is the sound of the song, incredibly loud and incredibly uh, sweet at the same time. But next I want you to see uh, the setting. That is, where is the song being sung? Verse 3 tells us, and they were singing a new song, they, the 144,000, singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. We're at the very center of the throne uh, room of God. Uh, the 144,000, that is to say, you and I uh, will be singing at the top of our lungs before God's very throne in the presence of Jesus the Lamb. And listening will be the four living creatures, those high-ranking angels we saw earlier in chapter uh, 4 and 5, the uh, 24 elders that we saw there as well, representing the redeemed of all ages. And the setting of our song will be the throne room of God with the Lamb as the very center. But what are we singing about? you might wonder. Well, that's the third thing we see, and that's the subject of our song. Uh, again, look at verse 3, the very beginning phrase, and they were singing a new song before the throne. The, in the Old Testament, a, a new song was always written as an expression of victory uh, over, over enemies, a, a triumph. Our song celebrates God's triumph over sin through the Lamb. It, it records... Uh, uh, our praise of being purchased out from those on earth. It describes our joy of being bought off the slave market, uh, paid for by the blood of the Lamb. And it says here in, in verse 3, note toward the end, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Because this is a song about redemption, only those who have experienced redemption can sing it. Without redemption, no one can sing this song. We're singing about our great redemption through the blood of Christ. There was a songwriter named Fanny Crosby that tried to capture her, the joy of being purchased by the precious blood of Christ in this uh, song called Redeemed. It was first published in 1882. I know many of you have uh, sung these very words, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am, redeemed and so happy in Jesus, no language my rapture can tell. I know that the light of His presence with me doth continually dwell. I think of my blessed Redeemer, I think of Him all the day long, I sing for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. I know I shall see in His beauty the King in whose law I delight, who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night in the chorus, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed, redeemed His child, and forever I am. We will be singing about our redemption 
at the top of our lungs. That we've been purchased out from the rest of humanity and paid for by the blood of Jesus, our Savior. And so the question remains for you, friend, is has Jesus the Lamb redeemed you? Has He purchased you out from among those on earth? Has He paid for your sin with His precious blood? Have you come to trust in His atoning death and nothing else? Have you surrendered your life to Him? This is something you could do right here this morning. It's simply renounce your sin. It's called repentance in Scripture. It means to turn your back on something and look to Jesus in His full payment for your sin on the cross. And just simply say, Jesus, I cannot save myself. I rely completely on You. And I give You my life. I would love to talk to, you about, talk to you about it afterwards. If you're not sure, if you're among this number, if you're sure you're among this number, then this is a great truth to share. That those around us can be redeemed as well. So, we see the subject of our song this uh, song, it's volume, it's, it's sound, it's loud and sweet at the same time. It's setting before the throne of God and its subject, our redemption. Well, there's one more feature of this celebration I want to show you. The celebration of the ages, and that is lastly the sanctification of of the saints. Sanctification is the $12 word that means to make something holy, to make something set apart, to set something apart for special use. And here we see the final sanctification of, of every believer in the Lord Jesus. Those who have taken up their cross to follow the Lamb stand before the throne completely conformed to the image of Christ. Two characteristics of their sanctification. First, they left behind the world to follow Christ. They left behind the world to follow Jesus Christ. Let me split that in half and take one part at a time. First we see that they left behind the world. They turned their back on the world. In verse 4, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, these believers have not committed spiritual adultery with the world around them. Uh, unfaithfulness to Jesus Christ is often described in these terms as, as spiritual adultery. Uh, in Leviticus, uh, the Lord said to Moses, you can hear the connection with idol worship and adultery in this verse. Israel... Um, must no longer offer their sacrifices to the goat demons that they have prostituted themselves with. And then jumping to the New Testament, into the book of James, 
uh, following the world is described as spiritual adultery. And James says this in James chapter 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, hatred with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uh, these are those who've turned their back on the world, who have not been unfaithful to Christ, uh, as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So they, to start with, they've turned their back on the world. But then notice further here, uh, not only have they turned their back on the world, they have uh, turned to follow Jesus Christ as, as verse 4 continues. Uh, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have left one thing to follow another, to follow the only thing. Uh, this describes commitment to the Lamb, uh, of surrender to the Lamb, wherever uh, He goes. Uh, these are the believers that Jesus describes in Matthew 10, uh, the verse I just had up on the slide, and I clicked past. Uh, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And in Luke 9, 23, and he said to, said to uh, all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, turn away from the world, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So to, to begin with then, these saints standing before the throne, singing at the top of their lungs, are those uh, who have left behind the world to follow Jesus Christ. But we see a second characteristic of them as verse 4 goes on. Uh, they are also those set apart as holy and those who pursued Christ-likeness. These before the throne are those who were set apart as holy and pursued Christ-likeness. Let me split this up too. The, the first half of the phrase. Notice how they were set apart as holy in verse 4. Down at the last phrase of verse 4, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. What's a first fruit? Uh, well, in the Old Testament Scriptures, the Israelites were instructed to set apart the first part of their harvest for the Lord. Uh, the first part of their harvest, or first fruits as they were called, they were, they were dedicated and holy to the Lord. They belonged to God and they were not, a, 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 they were not for ordinary use. They were consecrated to Him. Now, the remainder of the harvest was ordinary or common and not set apart for God. And the Israelites could use that part, but not the first fruits. And in a similar way, the redeemed are set apart for God. Believers are set apart from the rest of humanity and holy to the Lord. Uh, Joshua, excuse me, Jeremiah describes this. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. And because 
We're set apart as first fruits and holy to the Lord. We're called to be holy uh, in 1 Peter 1. Uh, 1 Peter 1 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. These believers standing before the Lamb are those who took the call to holiness seriously. Let me pause here. And if you're in this number, this indicates that you've taken the call to holiness seriously also. That when he says, be holy for I am holy, that you follow after that. Holy means to be set apart for his use. It's not common like the rest of the crop. It's not ordinary. The first fruit fruit was dedicated to the Lord. And it was different. And Israel couldn't use that because it was the Lord's. So, do you look like you're set apart? This is a very important question. If you look like the rest of everybody else, common. And look just like everybody else around. This is not a good thing. Because you're called, you're a first fruit, and you're called to be distinct. Not weird, but distinct. Well, these believers, as first fruits, took this call to holiness seriously. First fruits for God and the Lamb. And having uh, seriously pursued holiness, uh, look at the second half, uh, uh, rather, verse 5. Because they took holiness seriously, they stand before the throne conformed to the image of Christ. We're talking about perfected Christians, finally uh, before Christ with sin removed, and they are conformed to the image of Jesus. What we're working on now and straining to become, they have done by the grace of God. And in their mouth was Uh, No lie was found. Now, it it can simply mean that they're not dishonest. And it certainly does mean that. But it means more than that because this phrase is lifted uh, very closely from a, a passage in the Old Testament that describes the Lord Jesus. This phrase, no lie was found in their mouth. Isaiah chapter 53 says this, They made his grave with the wicked, the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, it could mean they were honest, but as John seems to draw heavily on the Old Testament, it seems to mean more than that. And John seems to be telling us that they were not just honest, they were. Were Christ-like. 
conformed to the image of Jesus. And the word, the last word in the in the sentence brings this out blameless. Uh, blameless uh, is a is a word used to describe Old Testament sacrifices. It means free from flaw. It means unspoiled. This is blamelessness and spotlessness. It is the reality of what Paul describes in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is that. The saints here are, are those who have been redeemed as firstfruits those who are holy to the Lord and have pursued holiness, and they stand before the throne on this, on this day of days, blameless before God. This is their sanctification. And this will be true of us, friend, but it cautions us is it true of us now that we've left behind the world to follow Christ and that we've been set apart as holy? And because of that, we pursue likeness to Jesus. Well, this is the third part of the celebration. We stand before the throne. Uh, finally, and fully cleansed from sin. So here we are, finally and safely delivered through the holy war, uh, joyfully celebrating the Lamb's victory. And as one of the 144,000 will be there. What will this eternal weight of glory be like? What will this victory celebration look like? It has three features uh, that we've looked at today. Uh, the Savior of the saints. His place in heavenly Mount Zion. His posture standing and claiming at last for the first time the bride of Christ fully assembled before Him, His very own people, His possession. We've seen the song of the saints that we will belt out in a completely sanctified way. Uh, the sound of thunder in sweet harmony uh, in the throne room, singing about our redemption. And last, we will be fully sanctified, cleansed as we stand before Him. Well, there's an account 
of an old missionary couple that had been working in Africa for years. And they were returning to New York City for their retirement. They uh, Years ago, mission boards weren't set up for things like pensions, and they didn't have a retirement account. Their health was broken. They were defeated. They were discouraged. They were afraid of finding work in New York City. And as they traveled across in this ocean liner, they discovered that they were booked on the same ship that President Teddy Roosevelt was. He was returning from Africa on one of his famous safaris uh, where he would travel to, you know, big game hunt. And um, the, the whole ship was just electric with trying to catch glimpses of the president or his, his entourage and, and pass, passengers peering around to try to catch a glimpse of them. And as this ship moved across the Atlantic, the, the missionary said to his wife, something's wrong. Why should we have given our lives in faithful service for God in Africa all these many years and have no one care a thing about us? Here this man comes back from a hunting trip and everybody makes much over him, but nobody gives two hoots about us. His wife wisely replied, Dear, you shouldn't feel that way. I can't help it. It doesn't seem right. And when the ship docked in New York, there was a band waiting to greet the president, the mayor, and other dignitaries were there. In fact, Teddy Roosevelt was given a ticker tape parade for coming back from Africa. The papers were full of his arrival. No one noticed the missionary couple. They slipped off the ship and found a cheap flat on the east side and hoping the next day to go out and look for work to see how they could scratch out a living. And that evening, the man was broken. He said to his wife, I, I can't take it. God is not treating us fairly. And his wife, again, wisely replied, why don't you go to the bedroom and tell that to the Lord? And a short time later, he came out from the bedroom. His face completely changed. And his wife asked him, what happened? The Lord settled it with me, he said. I told him how bitter I was that the president shouldn't receive this tremendous homecoming when no one met us as we returned home. And when I finished, it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, but you're not home yet. But you're not home yet. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let me pray for us as we conclude. We thank you, Father, for this glimpse of eternity that you've given us through your word. And I pray for all of us soldiers of the cross assembled here this morning, that you would uh, strengthen our hands 
Strengthen our weak knees. That You would restore a spring to our step. That You would encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak by showing them what's ahead. What's across the finish line. Most of all, Jesus, You are across the finish line. Strengthen us to uh, return to the front line today as we walk out the door of this church. Strengthen us for battle. Uh, Strengthen us with the armor of God. May we faithfully strap it on, but may we keep glory in mind, this eternal weight that is beyond all comparison. Jesus, we pray in Your name. Amen.